this point with your parents' permission. Children up through third grade are dismissed to junior worship. And for the rest of us, let's take a moment. Let's prepare our hearts for God's word with prayer. Holy Father, we ask that you would come to us now through your word, by your spirit. Father, illumine our hearts. Shine on us with your face. Show us the pleasure of your heart. God, cause us to understand your words. Cause us to understand your son. Lord, bind up our sins in your son and lay our death on his, and give us his life in exchange. We ask this as unworthy sinners, but knowing that you are infinitely gracious, utterly compassionate. So we cast ourselves on your mercy, and we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome again. It's been a few weeks since we were at our last spot in this part of the book of John. <clears throat> so we have to kind of recall ourselves. If you're a visitor with us or if you're a guest, we're, we're working through the gospel of John. And so I encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open and follow along. We're looking at John chapter 8. And today we'll be looking at verses 12 through 30. And this picks up, unfortunately, we're right in the middle of uh, kind of an important part of this chapter. Uh, the last bit of chapter 7 introduces a feast that Jesus has gone up to, and this feast has two important parts to it. We dealt with the first part, which is the procession of the water and the wine through the streets of Jerusalem, and now we come to the second part of that feast. So today's theme, if you have a handout across the top, you'll see it. Our big idea today is that Jesus is God's gracious illumination, protection, and salvation. Jesus is God's gracious illumination, protection, and salvation. Another way to think about the section that we're about to begin, actually, is a little bit of an aside. Uh, if you read in any commentaries or things like that, from here on begins the section that is sometimes called the I am section of John because we get a series of I am statements, the first one being here, I am the light. But you're gonna, you'll find several others like I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Th those sorts of statements are beginning here. And all of these statements, the I am statements, tell us something about Jesus that's properly basic or foundational, fundamental, essential to a saving faith in him. Things that Jesus claims to be, we need to receive him as those things. We need to receive him as those things in our heart and in our life. So this first one is really critical, as are the others. So let's summarize this passage and get a sense of what's going on. Because while we get this I am statement that we're probably going to spend most of our time thinking about most of the section doesn't actually talk about it. So in verse 12, if you look, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus claims to be the living light of God's grace. And then in verse 13, the Pharisees try and trip him up. They said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. 
So they're thinking back to chapter 5 when Jesus claimed three witnesses to prove his testimony was true. And here he's just speaking on his own accord. So the Pharisees are like, oh, we'll get him now. Then verses 14 through 18, Jesus responds to their criticism. He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, even if that is the case, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is just. My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So he goes on. Jesus asserts the authority of his testimony, and he asserts the authenticity of his testimony. It's a genuine testimony. It hasn't been falsified, and it's authoritative. You have to receive it. It's a valid testimony, even if he's the only one testifying to himself, which, as we know from chapter 5, isn't the case. But even if it were the case, you still need to receive it. Verses 19 through 24, then, Jesus confronts their, meaning the Pharisees' faithless obedience, their hypocritical piety, their pretentious religiosity. In verses 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father as well. These words he spoke in the treasury. So he's going to confront them about their, hypocr their hypocrisy, that they don't actually know God, and as a consequence, they don't recognize Jesus. And then verses 25 through 30, Jesus sort of wraps it all up. They said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. So in case we think that this sounds like a different testimony, if we think this sounds like Jesus is saying something new or different, he's not. And if you've been reading through the Gospel of John and thinking, wow, this sounds really similar, you're correct. <laughs> he hasn't been throwing any new information at you. He says, I have as much to say about you and much to judge. He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They didn't understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that's kind of a code phrase in the Gospel of John. Many of us already know it, that when the Son of Man is lifted up, Jesus is referring to his death on the cross. So, Jesus claims to be God's light, revealed and fulfilled in himself. He anchors this testimony on where he's come from and where he's going. It's kind of an odd way to prove your testimony. When we have a court case, if, if a lawyer were to call a witness to the stand, he wouldn't introduce him to the jury by saying, now, gentlemen, I want you to know this man here is from Akron, and he's going to Lima. Now you can know for certain that his testimony is true. <laughs> like, right, we wouldn't do that. Like, what, what does it matter where he comes from or where he's going? So we're going to have to think a little carefully about this. So... We're going to break this into several sections. The first thing I want to talk about are three glories of God's light that are revealed and fulfilled in Christ. Three glories of God's light that are revealed and fulfilled in Christ. 
What's going on? Why does he say he's the light of the world? Well, every night during the Feast of the Tabernacles, just like during the day we had this procession of the water and the wine, well, at night there was this amazing commemoration of the fiery presence of God during the nights of the wilderness journeys. They would light several enormous lamps in the court of the women in the temple, meaning everyone could come and see this amazing light. According to some sources, music and dancing would run all night long, and the light of those lamps could be seen throughout Jerusalem. So the Temple Mount is up at the upper portion of Jerusalem. You could see the light of the temple from other places in the city. I always remember, uh, occasionally when we were in Colorado, we'd go up to Grand Lake, which is up above Denver, and you could, there's a, a cleft in the mountains, and at night you could actually see the glow of the city. You could see Denver's glow below you because of all the electric lights. Well, think something like that. When that you were in the city of Jerusalem, you could look up to the Temple Mount and you'd see these lights glowing in the temple. So when Jesus says that he is the light of the world, he's claiming to be the very things those lamps symbolize, just like he claimed to be the water that was being carried through the street. He says he's... Um, that someone who metaphorically walks or travels by Jesus' light through the wilderness of this light goes with the same illumination, the same protection, and the same deliverance that God provided to his people in the desert. So you'll remember that as Israel is brought out of Egypt and they enter into the desert, what guides them? It says a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that's the presence of the almighty God leading them. So that as the people are lighting these lamps, they're saying, hey, when we were at our worst spot, lost in the wilderness outside of Egypt with no homeland and nowhere to go, God led us then. God provided for us. He brought us where he wanted us to go. And he's always going to provide for us. He's always going to lead us. And Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of that promise. Do you want to know where God wants you to go? Follow me. Do you want to understand God's word? Let me shine on that word. Do you, do you want God's protection? Do you want God's deliverance? Do you want his almighty power going before you? You need to be with me. So we need to consider now three dimensions of this idea. What's the idea? The idea is that God's light is revealed and fulfilled in Christ. That's the idea, right? Jesus is the light of God, the light to the world. So three aspects of that. One, the light of God is Jesus' spiritual illumination. Two, his sovereign protection. And three, deliverance. The first one is the light of God is his spiritual illumination. It's a gracious indwelling. It's certain knowledge of God. So let's just think about two passages. One, Psalm 119, verse 105. You can probably quote this to me. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So notice there, what is it? It's God's instruction. It's his word. And what's his word like? It's like a light. It's like a lamp. It shows you where to go. Proverbs 6, 23. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. So there the, the, the author is saying, 
Do you see how God's instruction for us is like light in our lives? It shows us what we should do. It exposes where we should go. God's light then is a gift of spiritual illumination. It's the ability to see spiritual reality as it really is. It's the, way, it's the ability to see spiritual reality the way it really is. And that's essential for recognizing and responding to spiritual deception. And for responding to God's works and God's words rightly. So think about how Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him. Why? He is not able to understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man, what all of us are apart from God's work in our hearts, looks at the word of God and it is not like a lamp to them. It is not like light. It does not illuminate things. It does not seem to make sense. It is offensive and hard and difficult because those things, those truths are spiritually discerned. They require God's light to shine in our hearts so that we can understand them. Lacking the light of God in our souls, we cannot see things as they are and we cannot respond to the truth as we ought to. Instead, now I think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4. The God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, blinded them, they can't see, to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So why can't they see? Because they are blinded. The light's there, but they can't see it. Everywhere scripture speaks of how God by his spirit and through his word is about the miraculous business of making darkened souls beacons of his truth. Jesus, when he claims to be the light of the world, is claiming to be the actual substance of God's spiritual illumination to the darkness of our soul's love for sin. Paul goes on in that exact passage that we just quoted, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, to say, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light of God's spiritual illumination. So one aspect of Jesus being the light of the world, is that he is the illumination that allows us to understand what God is saying and to respond to him. It's what allows us to see deception for what it is. It's what allows us to see the world as it truly is. Secondly, the light of God is his sovereign protection. The light of God is his sovereign protection. Now, by this, we mean that God's light is not a passive thing. It's dynamic. What do I mean by that? I mean that it does not only or merely illuminate our circumstances. It changes them. Now, we turn on a light, like we bring a light into a room. You got a dark room, you bring a light into the room. All the light does is it shows you what's in the room, right? That's all it can do. But God's light 
changes the room. God's light actually changes the circumstances around us. It doesn't always just show us what's really there. It changes them. It leads us. In Exodus 13, 21 through 22, we hear that in the exodus from Egypt, the Lord went before them, pillar of cloud by day, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Now, his light was not only so that they could see. It was. The light of the fire allowed them to actually physically see what was around them. It showed them what was really there. But the point of it was not just that. It wasn't so that they could have a lamp by which they could choose how they were going to navigate the desert, right? God wasn't like, wow, you guys can't see without light. Here, I will provide you light, which would be grace. And then you get to pick how you're going to sort this desert out. No. The light of God led them. They were to walk by its light. Yes, they were to walk after its light. It showed them where to go. They had to follow it. His light was not so that they could see and choose their own way. His light illuminated, illuminated the way he was going to lead them. They followed the light. The light was their leader, not their servant. Again, in Habakkuk 3, 3 and 4, we here, the Lord came from Teman, and his splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and they were veiled in power. Isn't that a great picture of God? His light is not passive. It doesn't just illuminate things. It changes things. When God shows up, stuff happens. When the fire leads them, it protects them, it leads them, it guides them, it's active. God's light is not just illumination, it is power. It is the visible manifestation. Here's a fancy word if you want one. It is the refulgence of God's glory. It's the visible manifestation of God's glory. It's his refulgence of his glory. His glory is so amazing, it is so intense. What God is is so powerful that it exudes from him like light, and it changes everything it touches. You cannot come into the presence of the living God and walk away unchanged. No one sees God and walks away the same. There isn't a single person that ever has. God's light is dynamic. Now listen again to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see how the light is not just light, it's active? He sh it has shown to give. The light of God is his active, gracious, miraculous work that illuminates and leads his people into his promises and into his rest. It is the visible outworking of his power. It is the expression of his inexorable might to save his people. A friend, I should just encourage you right there. If you stand in the light of Jesus, you not only have spiritual understanding, you not only see scripture as it really is, God's active protection is about you. He is changing you. He is leading you. And he promises by that power to bring you to exactly the place that he means for you to go. Thirdly, the light of God then is his deliverance. 
It's not just his illumination. It's not just his protection. It is his deliverance revealed and applied by his gracious and glorious presence. Here's a few more scriptures. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation because he's my light. Psalm 44, verse 3. For not by their own sword did they win the land. This is speaking about how the Israelites came into the land of promise. Nor did their own arms save them. They weren't strong enough. They didn't have military prowess enough. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So what was the military conquering of Canaan? It was the light of God being brought into that place. It changed the circumstance. It was his deliverance. When God's face shines on you with favor, you experience his deliverance. That is his delight in you. Isaiah 49, verse 6, I will make you, that's the Messiah in this case, a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Do you see those parallel structures? God's light is his salvation. Why will he make the Messiah a light? So that the ends of the earth will be saved. So the light of God miraculously illuminates us. It actively guides us always to one great goal and purpose our salvation from sin, and into glorious delight in God. It is this light and it is this power that effects the salvation of God's people. It is this light. It is this miraculous, wonder-working, life-giving power that Jesus claims to be. All that work, roll it up in a ball, go back and hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world. I am the spiritual illumination. I am the active protection of God. I am God's deliverance. If you walk in me, you'll not walk in darkness. You will have the light of life. He says that only but all those who walk by his light will escape the darkness of sin and find eternal life in his name. Friends, Jesus is not claiming to be merely welcoming, warm, or inviting. He's not claiming to be a form of philosophical enlightenment. He's not a great idea that has going to have a pleasant impact on how you live your life. Jesus is claiming to be the sole and essential source of light. He's claiming to be the sun of our spiritual existence, without which we would not only be blind, but frozen and dead in sinful ignorance, without which we would have nothing. He is claiming to be the only safe harbor against the terrors of sin and the coming judgment. When Jesus claims to be the light of the world, he's claiming to be true substance as opposed to the emptiness of sin, because light actually has real substance. Darkness is merely the absence of something. It's not the presence of blackness, it's the absence of light. And Christ is claiming to be the only true substance in the world. And just as light suffuses wherever it is with its own presence, 
so is Christ. As night is the absence of light, so sin is the absence or the distortion of gracious and faithful obedience and delight in God. Jesus is claiming to be our only source of true joy, the final expression of God's real presence, the only deliverance by which we can be saved. And that is as best as I can say it, what Jesus means when he says, I am the light of the world. Now the question arises, how do we perceive this light? That's what it is. But how does this light shine in our hearts? Well, Paul told us we see it in the face of Jesus Christ, the image of God. But what if we don't, what if he's not there? What if we can't see him? What if, what if we, unlike Doubting Thomas, don't have him <laughs> to lay hold of? Well, then the way that we hear the light, if you'll pardon the mixed metaphor, is through his words. And that's why the authority and the authenticity of his testimony become the central point of the passage, right? That's why the Pharisees are like, so how can we trust you? How do we know that what you're saying is true? Because we have to know what Jesus says is true because that's the substance of the light of God. The Pharisees confront his audacious claim in verse 13, saying, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And so the remainder of this passage deals with his response. So let's break it into three parts. So we had three glories of Christ as the light of God. Now we've got three grounds of Jesus' testimony. What is his testimony? It's two short phrases, right? I am from above, and I am he. At the very end, he's going to say, when I'm lifted up, then you will know that I am he. And why is he saying, this, I am he? It's probably the closest Greek approximation to the Aramaic that he said, which would have been, I am Yahweh. I am the covenant God of Israel. What are the three grounds? One, Jesus' testimony depends on his Father's words. Jesus' testimony depends on his Father's words. In verse 18, you'll see, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So Jesus insists that what the Jews regard as his own self-testimony is not, properly speaking, self-testimony. This is because Jesus does not speak of his own accord, as he'll say in John 12, 49. But the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and what to speak. So since he is, as it were, repeating his Father's words verbatim, it is not, properly speaking, self-testimony. Now, Jesus is not interested in evading the Pharisees' argument, but, he's, but he is interested in demonstrating his union and his dependency on God his Father. That when Jesus speaks, the Father speaks. That Jesus only speaks what the Father speaks. There aren't two separate records or two separate transcripts of, of God's message to the world. The bit that God said and the bit that Jesus said, and sometimes they happen to overlap. Now Jesus treats his words as God's words and God's words as his words. They are the same.
See, if I were to quote some very smart person, and if he was you know, helpful, at the end of the quote, I'd tell you, right? I'd say, that wasn't me. I didn't say that because I didn't come up with it because I'm not particularly smart. That was this person. They said this. And Jesus is not offering a footnote, right? He says, no, yeah, th these are God's words. Yes, that would imply that I'm not God, but I am. That's why I don't footnote it. <laughs> my words stand for God's words. God's words are my words. Secondly, Jesus' testimony depends on his origin and his purpose. Look at verse 14. Even if I do bear witness about myself, he says, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. And as I alluded to earlier, it's kind of an odd way to substantiate your testimony, or at least to me it seems like an odd way. But Jesus says that even if you were to refuse to accept that his testimony is verbatim God's words, it is still authentic and authoritative testimony because of who he is. Because he has ontological unity, is what we would say. Meaning, he is of the exact same nature as God. His absolute union with the Father. He says that where he comes from and where he is going authenticates and proves that it's genuine and authorizes, making it powerful, his testimony. Now, why? Because where he comes from is God. And where he is going is God's predestined will and purpose for him, which we see at the end of the section. In verse 28, he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. That's where he's going. He's coming from God, and he's going to the cross. And these two signposts, as it were, mark out that his testimony is genuine and it's authoritative. So the first proof of Jesus' testimony is that it is God the Father's express words. And the second proof is that he has come from God and is going to perfectly obey God's predestined will by dying on the cross. Another way to think about this where I come from thing, maybe it will help you, is to think about like an ambassador. Now, if I, Gordon Christopher McPhail, took it upon myself to get on an airplane and fly over to Ukraine and sit down with President Zelensky and have a word with him. My words carry no weight. I'm just Gordon, <laughs> some dude from Ohio. Now, what if I'm the actual ambassador? What if I carry the seal of the President of the United States and I go and I sit down with President Zelensky? Ah, my words are totally different. I am not just some dude from Ohio. Okay, that's where I come from. It matters, right? Jesus is a genuine ambassador of the household of God. He speaks with divine authority. You should listen to him. Where I'm going. Here's a way to think about the where I'm going thing. So we got this old myth, right? That the man who draws the sword out of the stone, he is the one true king of England. Anybody sword in the stone? Oh, I did love it so much growing up. Okay, so we all know that, you know, 
every year the knights come and they try and draw the sword out of the stone. And even Kay comes, you know, he tries to pull the sword, he can't. And then Arthur comes along and just, shink, it just comes right out. Okay, he did the thing. And the thing proves that he's what? He's the king. He's the king of England, or Thor's hammer, right? You know, only someone who's of pure heart, he can pick up Thor's hammer. We see people come over, and they're like, oh, I can't, you know. But then Thor, can he can just pick it up, just like, you know, it's just his. When Jesus goes to the cross, that's where he's going. When he accomplishes that work, when you see that work, it's like drawing the sword out of the stone. It's like picking up Thor's hammer. He can do it. He's the only one that can do it. And when he does it, you'll see. You'll know where I come from and where I'm going. Thirdly, Jesus' testimony depends on his living in personal unity with God the Father. If you look at verse 19, he condemns them. He says, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And this really sums up Jesus' argument. This argument, if you want another fancy word, is a tautological argument. A tautology means A equals A. A thing equals itself. A thing is itself. Gordon is Gordon. That's a tautological statement. It's very helpful when we're thinking through the law of non-contradiction, meaning that something must be itself. It can't be something else at the same time. It's either itself or it isn't itself. Jesus is arguing that he is God. He is A. God is A. To know the one is to know the other. To know the other is to know the one. It sums up Jesus' argument. If they knew God, they would know Jesus. But unfortunately, since they don't know Christ, what does that mean about their religion? They don't know God. And since they don't know God, they cannot truly know or approve of Jesus. It will take something majestically miraculous to change their hearts and minds. Only the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah, by the power of his spirit, can renovate the unbelieving heart. Friends, some of us look at the Bible as though we're trying to see if it shows us a God that we want to follow, as opposed to going to the Bible to see the God that is. As long as you're placing conditions on that God, you're building a God in your own image. But Jesus says, follow me, I am God. You just, you need to receive him as God in order to follow him. So let's finish with seven pastoral observations. These will go faster, I promise. Verse 12, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We see that we are either living by the light and life of Jesus or we are still walking and pursuing darkness. When we look at that verse, we see we are either living by the light and life of Jesus or we are still walking in and pursuing darkness. John MacArthur is fond of saying, the mark of our spiritual nature is not our perfection, but our direction. We are either moving away from Christ and toward sin or toward Christ and away from sin. We don't look at ourselves and say, have I stopped sinning altogether? That's the mark of whether or not I'm Christ. No, no, it's the direction. Are you moving toward Christ? Can you, over time, see a progressive change in your character, an increase in the fruit of God? 
that means that you're walking not only by the light of Christ, but behind the light of Christ. You're following his light. Because otherwise, you're walking in darkness. Those who have truly tasted of the grace of God know deep inside that nothing else but God and God alone will satisfy their hearts. If you came to Sunday school this morning, uh, Roger did a great job of teaching us through Psalm 73, and this is what the psalmist concluded, right? He concluded that nothing compares with God. I want God, and I want God and only God. Secondly, sin corrupts our whole nature. Verse 15, he says, you judge according to the flesh, and I judge no one. Walking in darkness is the result of an all-encompassing and pervasively sinful nature. It distorts our judgment, that's what we see in verse 15. It corrupts our knowledge of God, we see that in verse 19, such that we cannot go where Jesus is, verse 21. It separates us from God, we are from below and we are of this world, verse 23, while Jesus is above and not of this world. So, thirdly, if we think we can come to a true knowledge of God apart from submitting to God's word, we're fooling ourselves. You're either living by the light of Christ or in darkness. We all have this pervasive sinful nature that twists the way we see things. And if we think that we can arrive at a true knowledge of God without submitting to his word, we're fooling ourselves. We must surrender our arrogance at the foot of the cross and admit that Apart from God's instruction in his word, we know neither him nor ourselves. So the first step to saving faith is letting the Bible tell us our own story. We think we know our own story. I certainly thought I knew my own story. I thought I knew what I was. In fact, it's what made Romans so hard for me for so long because Romans insisted over and over again, Gordon Christopher McPhail, you are a sinner. You are a sinner by nature. You are a sinner by choice. You hate God. And I sat there and go, no, I don't. I don't hate God. Yes, you do. And you love darkness and you love sin. You love your own way. You would rather your own way than any other way. And you will take that way straight to hell. And I just looked at it. No, this can't be true. It is true. And every single one of us must learn to let Scripture tell us our story because until you hear that, you will never hear or want to hear or see or go to a man who stood in your place and took your sin and gave you a new nature and gave you a new love and a new heart and a new way. Fourth, if you persist in rejecting God's word, you are going to perish. Three times Jesus says, you will die in your sin unless you believe that I am he. If you persist in rejecting God's word, you are going to perish. Do not pretend that Christianity need only have a minor or peripheral effect on your life. Just as a man crushed by a car needs a tourniquet, a physician, and a hospital, and not just a better attitude, the persistent refusal of God's gracious remedy only shortens the opportunity of his grace. How ridiculous it would be if we found a man who had been run over by a car and was bleeding out on the pavement, and we said to him, sir, can I take you to a hospital? He says, no, 
it's all in my it's mind over matter. I just, I got to feel better about this. Like, no, you need remedy and your time is running very short. So it is with all of us. Just because God can save any sinner does not mean that we should presume upon his grace. And everything in your heart, friend, is going to tell you, just like the heroin addict, that they need just one more hit before they depart from the life. The liar is going to say, I just, I just need to tell one more untruth before I walk in the truth of Christ. The gospel is going to say, I need to share one more salacious detail with someone else before I go and walk in the honest and love of Jesus Christ. The, the lustful person is going to say, I need one more look. I need one more experience before I go and I follow Jesus Christ. But every single one of those is a lie. And every single last one of them is telling you that if you reject God's word, you won't perish. That's the lie that Satan tells his people. But Jesus says three times, unless you believe that I am he, unless you walk in my light, unless you trust in me, unless you follow where I'm going, you will die in your sins. So fifth, the way out of this problem is to repent. That means to change your mind. And to believe, that means to trust in Jesus. You need to, by God's strength and grace, leave your old way of life. You need to trust Jesus for a new life. You need to choose to find your greatest satisfaction, your rule for all of life in the person, the word, and the work of Jesus. R.C. Sproul's famous for this illustration. I got to do it quickly, but it's so helpful. There's, there's three parts to faith, Right? You have to know what it is, you have to agree with it, and then you have to actually practice it. And he, he uses the illustration of a chair, that I can look at this chair here and I can say, I know that chairs exist. I think that is a chair. I can even look at it and say, it has a back, it has a seat, it has legs. I think it will support me. If I sat on it, it will hold me up. But it is not until I sit in the chair that I'm trusting the chair to hold me up. That's what faith is. Faith doesn't just look at Jesus and say, I think you might be a kind of savior. Nor does it look at Jesus and say, I think you might be able to save me. Faith looks at Jesus and rests in Jesus. It trusts Jesus to save us. Six, the best medicine for the soul is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. I, I use this parable often because it is so powerful in my own heart. In Pilgrim's Progress which is a parable about the spiritual life of a Christian. Christian obeys the prophet evangelist and he leaves the city of destruction. But it isn't until he comes to the cross and falls down at its foot that his burden of sin, which so frightened him in the city of destruction, breaks off and rolls away. He travels by evangelists' uh, encouragement toward the cross, but he has the burden. It's not until he gets to the cross. No preacher can take the burden off your back. No sound instruction, no wonderful discipline in life. You must go to the cross. You must go, as verse 28 says, and see Jesus Christ crucified for sinners and receive him as your savior. It is there that the burden of sin falls away. Seventh, Jesus, the light of the world, can bring you into everlasting life. You have to imagine that the Israelites in the wilderness, there had to be at least some of them that looked at each other and said, you're telling me this pillar of fire is going to lead us into the promised land? Are you nuts? 
And after the 10th year of following that pillar of fire, don't you think that those questions would have begun to get a little bit hotter? And by the 35th year, you're beginning to really, really wonder, friend, what's the truth? The truth is it did lead them into the promised land. God always keeps his promises. Jesus can bring you into eternal life. If you this morning are sitting here going, Gordon, I just don't know. I just don't know. Can he do it? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Jesus can bring you into God's eternal rest. When Christ comes to you, he illumines your heart and your mind. He protects you and guides you through temptation, not so that you never suffer, but so that you're never lost. And ultimately, he keeps you. He preserves you. He brings you home. He brought Abram to the land he promised. He brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He brought them back from Babylon. He preserved countless souls and the faith of thousands of saints. He will carry you as well. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask that you would shine in our hearts in the face of your son, Jesus Christ, to give us the knowledge of your glory and grace. We want to follow you wherever you would go. We would rather have you than life itself because you are life. Give us a heart to follow you, Jesus. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.